2: Welcome to the Wednesday program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, really anything on your heart. All you have to do is pick up the phone and dial 210. 210- 340 9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll free at 877 630 KSLR. That's 630 5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, I remind you, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Well, we will get right to the questions. Let me remind you tonight. I'm actually really proud of this. We're going to be finishing the book of Leviticus tonight, uh, the 27th chapter. Uh, next Wednesday, we're going to be going into the Old Testament prophecy of Amos. Uh, but tonight we finish Leviticus. And then, of course, tomorrow, uh, Paula will be live in studio with us on the date day edition of the program. So she will be ready for any calls and questions. Okay, here's a question from Benjamin. I started with this yesterday. At the, at the end of the show, uh, but uh, I just gave him a real simple answer, but I think it's an important question. Benjamin wanted to know, is there a two-state solution possible in Israel? You know, Benjamin, one of the things as we've been going through the Old Testament on Wednesday nights, one of the things that God makes clear is that the land belongs to him. God has chosen that one strip of land. Land uh, in all the world, and he's claimed it as his and he can give it to whom he wants. He gave it to Israel. Now, Israel has been for uh, my lifetime been trying to negotiate parts of that land away, and it just never works. So the answer to your question, is there a two-state solution possible for Israel? The answer is no, because the land doesn't belong to Israel. God lets them use it. He's promised to bless them if they would be obedient. Of course, we know Israel's history. We also know how far they are from God now. It's interesting. People will call Israel the holy land. If you're visiting Israel now, there's nothing holy about what's going on in Israel. But the land is God's. He's sort of the landlord and Israel the tenant. And the tenant doesn't have the right to give it away. Now, there's also outside pressure. Just as today there is a lot of outside pressure, particularly coming from the United States, for uh, Israel to uh, cease the war effort um, in Gaza. Um, Israel has caved into the pressure from the world to try to create a two-state solution, and God has frustrated at every turn of events. So, uh, the land is God's. Um, He doesn't give and then take it away. Uh, It's His land. He's given it to Israel. That land will be Jesus' land when he comes and sets his feet on the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives split in two and there will be a great earthquake and that will signify the end of our current age and then we will go into the millennial reign of Jesus Christ and uh, all of this nonsense will stop. So no peace is possible in Israel until the Prince of Peace returns, Benjamin. And uh, I think that's something that we've got to understand. You know, man can try to frustrate God's plans, but uh, of course, God always wins. So uh, no two-state solution in Israel. Nothing will ever work, despite uh, all the negotiations and the best efforts of mankind to try to thwart the plan of God. Here's a difficult question. Anonymous um, writes and says, why doesn't God stop rape and child molestation? You know, Anonymous, God is going to stop all of this. There's a time coming, and I believe that time is coming very, very soon. Uh, But there's a time coming when justice will return. Justice will prevail. Uh, But that time isn't now. We live in a fallen world, And God looks at the sin. The sin breaks his heart. I mentioned in the program yesterday when Jesus was at the tomb of Lazarus and he wept. He didn't weep because of Lazarus. He knew he was going to raise him from the dead. He wept simply because um, the land wasn't what it was supposed to be. The world wasn't the way he created it. And from the beginning, the enemy has taken over. It's called the Little g, God of this world, or the prince of the air. And bad things happen and God doesn't intervene. Now, we might think from a human perspective, well, God should stop it. When really bad things happen, God should stop it. Here's one of the problems with that anonymous. God is holy, completely holy. And if he stops sin, he'd have to stop it all. Not just what you think is terrible and what I think is terrible. He'd have to stop it all. And what that means is he'd stop your sin and my sin. Again, I want to remind you, I said at the beginning of this question, he's going to do that. I believe he's going to do that very soon. But that time is not now because God is still calling sinners to repentance. He's still in the business of saving people, still dealing with the human race in grace rather than judgment. Jesus said he didn't come to judge the world, but that through him the world would be saved. And, and what we need to do is be grateful for that because God is still reaching out to the people on your prayer list and mind. Now, here's one of the approaches that we have to understand, especially if you are a victim of any of these things. God's heart is broken. His heart is filled with pain. He understands more than anybody that we can imagine what pain and injustice is really like. And we have to rest in the fact that that time when he is going to deal with all pain, that time is coming. It's just not yet. So I hope that makes sense to you. Uh, we who are victims of these kind of things, you know, we like to, to think, well, God owes us. He, he, these things shouldn't happen. But the the reality is, is uh, there is evil all over this world, evil that is indescribable. But God sees it all. One day for the victims especially, God is going to hold them in his arms, figuratively speaking. And they're going to understand his pain. And his presence was always there. So I hope that makes sense to you. It's very important that we look at these things with the right perspective. Here is a question from Nacho from our mobile app. Um, Pastor Ron what does Paul mean by the world has been crucified to me and I to the world in Galatians six fourteen? please be patient with my voice I'm still dealing with mountain cedar allergies not sure what he simply means the world is dead to him the desires of the world um, are not his desires anymore I think he describes it really really well in uh, Romans chapter 7 when he says, you know, what I want to do, I don't do, and what I don't want to do, that's what I keep doing. And he knows because of that he needs to be rescued. But while he sins, and he says this in his letter to the Romans, when I I find this a lot work, when I sin, it's not me who sins, but sin living in me. And what Paul is saying is that who he is in Christ, the born-again Paul, um, he wants to please God. He doesn't want to capitulate to the things of this world. He wants to please the Lord. And that's the transaction that occurred on Calvary. Now, not even the apostle Paul did it perfectly, Nacho. But the truth is that um the world just loses its appeal. You know, when I got saved, I was um it was now 30 almost 33 years ago. The next month it'll be 33 years. And, and I did all kinds of things. I was gambling and playing poker and doing all kinds of things. And I, I got to tell you the truth. I love going to the racetrack. I love playing poker. I love doing those things. Um, and so when I got saved, I you know, I just kept doing those things. But in very short order, and I'm talking about Paula being at home praying. In very short order, I, I would be in the middle of a poker game or at the racetrack. And, and I would think, well, this isn't fun. Why am I here? And it was the same thing I'd been doing the whole time. But because the world had been crucified to me and I to the world, it's, it was simply a place where Jesus couldn't be there with me. And I would rather be with Jesus where he is than to be somewhere of my own making where he couldn't go. And that's what Paul means by that statement in Galatians chapter 6. It is a passage of Scripture that we all ought to really, truly take to heart. Thank you, Nacho, for the question. Here is a question. This one is from Leslie. If a really bad young child dies, do they go to hell? Um, Leslie, kids are, are only accountable when they're accountable. And by that I mean when they know what they're doing. So I don't know you say young child, I don't know, but the age of accountability is different for each child. Um but but if, if they don't have the ability uh to distinguish between right and wrong, um, if the Holy Spirit hasn't already begun to knock on the door of the hearts, no, of course they wouldn't go to hell. God is just. And and I'd need a little more detail, I guess, what you mean by a really bad young child. Uh, I've seen some really bad young kids. Uh, I was one of them who turned into a pretty committed Christian. So, no, uh, this isn't a matter of, well, they did bad things, so they're going to hell. Um, The age of accountability differs between every child. I've seen kids as young as four years old who I absolutely knew were accountable to God. They understood it, and they responded to the gospel in in a way that was way more mature than their years. Uh, And I've seen kids that were in their early teens who seem not to have a clue. So this is one of those questions, Leslie, where I'm going to have to say, this is a question only God can answer because only God really knows the heart. Nobody goes to hell if they're born again. Nobody goes to hell if they're not accountable for their sin. Um, And then, as you know, people go to hell only for rejecting Jesus Christ. So that's the best I can do with that information that you've given us. Here's a question from Marcy. I know Eve was created as a sinless being, so how could she be tempted by the devil? Um, I, I think there's something to distinguish here, Marcy. Uh, I, she wasn't created sinless. Uh, she was created by God. I think it's, it's more accurate to say that she was created in perfection, And that's God created her from Adam's side. Uh, Adam was created from the dust of the earth. And uh, they stood before the Lord. He said, it's very good. Ephesians 2.10 says that mankind, humans, uh, were his work of poetry or his work of poetic expression, the best thing that he ever did. So she was created in perfection still. Adam and Eve had to be given a choice. That's why God put the tree of choice in the garden. All these other trees that you can have, uh, you can eat from any of them, but one tree you can't have, and that was a tree to give them the opportunity of their own free will to choose to be obedient. Now, obviously, Adam and Eve didn't know this, but Jesus would later say, uh, if you love me, you will obey me. And so that was the test. And that's why Lucifer, Satan, was allowed into the garden. He was a facilitator of that test. And, of course, we know that neither one of them passed the test. So uh, she was tempted uh, by her own free will. She was tempted by the agency of the devil. Uh, And the reality was that that they failed the test. And I think, Marcy, all of us can understand that. Um, when it comes time to make a choice. Let, let me explain it this way. You know, we raise our kids to go to to uh, church and to love Jesus. Um, we we talk a lot about our kids growing up and going away to college and we losing an entire generation of people. Well, Jesus doesn't lose anybody that really belongs to him. And when we send kids away, uh, that's their tree of choice. When they're in the world, they've got to decide, are they going to do what God says to do? Or are they going to do what they want to do? And that was exactly the same choice that Adam and Eve had in the garden. It's the same choice that we uh, exhibit every single day. Uh, Those of us who are believers, are we going to follow Jesus today? Are we going to do things our way? Um, It's the same choice that unbelievers make every single day. So she was tempted um, because she had to make a choice, and she gave in. So I hope that makes sense to you, Marcy. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Philip says, Why do most Jews reject Jesus as the Messiah? Um, Philip, I think there's a lot of answers, but let me give you God's answer. Uh, He says through the Apostle Paul that they reject Jesus because a veil is covering their hearts. In other words, the truth is hidden from them. Now, that may sound like God is trying to hide the reality of Jesus Christ from them, but he says, no, all they have to do to remove that veil is turn toward Jesus Christ. Now, I pray for Jews to get saved a lot. And when I do that, um, one of the, the... pictures in my mind is, is and, and in my prayers is Lord, um, all they need is a little tiny turn toward Jesus and then you'll rip the veil away and then they'll be able to see clearly to make a choice um, but the reason they reject him um, I'm going to give you two of them they, 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 their mind, their heart is hardened toward um, Jesus Christ um, but there's another dynamic at work as well, Philip and this is whether you're a Jew or Gentile it doesn't matter. Um, we don't want to stop sinning. Um, I did a message uh, recently where I told our church, in fact, it was just this past Sunday make no mistake, the only reason people reject Jesus Christ is because they don't want to be told they can't sin, because they don't want to stop. And Jesus talks about righteousness and holiness and self control. And if that's the case, and I don't want to stop sinning, I'm just saying, I just don't believe it. And that's when our heart gets harder. And the Jews have that other spiritual element of that veil, that spiritual veil covering their hearts. And all they need to do is a little turn toward Jesus. And that veil will be removed. But please understand that the, the question with all mankind is sin. And they don't... They, they simply don't want to stop sinning. Pray for them, Philip. Pray for everybody who's not saved, but but especially pray for God's people, the Jews. Here's a question from Ronaldo. Uh, Please try to explain in detail and simply why are you so against a Christian marrying a non Christian? Um, Ronaldo, I've explained this so many times, I'm surprised that you would ask. It's simple. Um, How could we be involved with someone who doesn't love our Jesus? Why would we want to be involved in a human relationship? Not just a human relationship, but the the most important human relationship, the, the relationship that is a picture of the relationship Jesus wants with us. Why would we want to be in a relationship with somebody who is going to go to hell? As a believer, we're going to spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. An unbeliever is not going to spend eternity eternity with you or with Jesus. They're going to be in eternal torment. Why would we want to enter into a covenant relationship with somebody like that? Why would we want to get involved in a relationship with somebody who wants nothing to do with the the very one who is the center of our lives? Real Christians love Jesus more than they love anything or anyone else, and so why would we want to be involved in a relationship with somebody who hates our Jesus? You know, I wouldn't be friends with somebody who spoke badly about Paula, made fun of her, or or called her names. I wouldn't I wouldn't have a relationship with somebody like that. And I love Jesus more than I love Paula. So how could you be in a relationship? Now, those are all of the logical reasons. But, but here's the reason, Ronaldo, that, that should trump all of the reasons. God said not to be involved in unequally old relationships. And when we make a choice to get involved with an unbeliever, what we're saying is, Lord, I know you love me, and I know you want what's best for me, but I love... I love this man or this woman, more than I love you. And God will never take a secondary position in your life, and things are going to be difficult. Let me give you a little more practicality, Ronaldo. In almost 29 years of being a pastor, the worst pain, a pain that never goes away that I've dealt with, is who are married to unbelievers it just doesn't work out there's nothing in common now i realize that there are people who are really nice people i realize that there's people that we're going to be attracted to i get all of that i really do but we get back to the place of choice we've got to decide who we love more do we love jesus more than we love this human being And if we decide, no, I'm going to do what I want because I love that man or I love that woman, well, then we've got to repent and get to the place where we have to decide, are we really his, are we really born again? So I don't know how much more in detail I can go than that. But, um, you know, the Bible's really clear. And again, I want to appeal to my personal experience the amount of pain that I've had to deal with. You know the, the 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 love sort of fades away um, once you're married, and and uh, Jesus is the one that holds it together. And if you don't have Him involved in your relationship, I mean, intimately involved in your relationship, then things are going to be really, really hard, and the result is always going to be pain. So, Ronaldo, that's as much detail. And as simply as I can put it, we've got about a little over three minutes left in this half of the program. Phones have been quiet. We'd love your calls. Billy says, are Christians supposed to celebrate the Jewish Sabbath? Um, the answer, Billy, is that every day is a Sabbath or a, 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 a festival day for us. All days, Paul writes uh, to the Colossians, are, are, are the same. And and every day is a Sabbath rest in Jesus Christ. We are not supposed to celebrate Saturday or the seventh day of the week. That was a law that was given to Israel. I think that's the simple hermeneutic, uh, hermeneutics 101. When you're studying something, when a commandment is given, to whom was it given? And it was given to Israel. Now people say, well, we we honor the Ten Commandments. And it's true, we do. And nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament for us. But this one, the Sabbath was a picture of our rest in Christ. Hebrews chapter 4 talks about Jesus Billy being the fulfillment of that picture. So it's just a picture of our rest. Jesus is the reality. And so when we... Uh, hold on to celebrating the Jewish Sabbath, then there's a whole bunch of other stuff. You know, I don't know a single Christian, Billy, uh, who celebrates the Sabbath um, the way Jews were supposed to celebrate the Sabbath. There's a lot more than just keeping the seventh day holy or consecrated to God. There was a whole lot of other regulations that went along with it. And even the Sabbatarians who think that, that the rest of us who celebrate on Sunday, uh, e- even they don't do the other things. And it's easy to say, well, then why do you drive in your car? Why do you um, um, lift things or move things? Um, you're not supposed to do any of those things. Well, you know, we don't do that anymore, I know, but why then do you insist on celebrating the seventh day as the Sabbath? Let me also say this, Billy, it's clear from the book of Acts that um, the early church, I'm talking about the apostles, they changed the day of celebration from the seventh day to the first day in honor of the most sacred event on the Christian calendar, and that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so they honored that resurrection. They validated the importance of that resurrection. They did it by setting that day apart as a day that they would meet together in fellowship. So, no, we're we're not supposed to celebrate the Sabbath. However, we're to celebrate as believers every single day as a gift from the Lord. Hey, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. This is The Word to Stand Up For Life. I'll be back in two minutes.
1: Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
2: Welcome back to the second half of our Wednesday program, 340-9585. Your live calls and questions toll-free. You can call 877-630-KSLR. Let's go to Cindy on the line. Cindy, thanks for holding. You are on the air.
0: Hi, Pastor Ron. Hi, Cindy. This morning I was reading in Psalm 9, and it's 13 and 14, and I'll go ahead and read them, read the verses. Oh, Lord, see how my enemies persecute me. Have mercy and lift me up from the gates of death. And then on 14, it says that I may declare your praises in the gates of the daughter of Zion and there rejoice in your salvation. And what I was kind of wondering about is if you clarify uh, the daughter of Zion, I'm going to get off the phone and listen on the radio. Bye.
2: Bye, Sandy. Thank you very, very much. All the references to Zion or Zionism or Zionists refer to the people of God. And the ultimate victory that they are going to experience together. So when he talks about the daughter of Zion, it's simply the the Jewish people are the daughter of the concept of Zionism. We in America might call it nationalism. Uh, you know, there's a big movement in the church that is anti-American um, nationalism, um, and and we should be anti that. But but but. Israeli nationalism that idea comes from god and that's what the idea that's what the idea is when it comes to zionism it's just god simply saying these are my people i've called them apart and the jewish people are then the 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 people of the zionist movement so that's all it is cindy thank you very very much i love that people are reading the psalms um when I did the question, the last one about the, the, uh, the observing the Sabbath, I didn't realize that two questions down on, on my list is an anonymous question that says, why do Christians say we need to obey the Ten Commandments but ignore the Fourth Commandment? And I explained in my answer that the Fourth Commandment is keeping the Sabbath holy or keeping it consecrated um and and we we ignore it because it's not a commandment that was written to us. it was written to Israel. Jesus fulfilled that commandment for us He is our permanent rest. The Sabbath was a temporary rest pointing to the person of Jesus Christ, and so we ignore that, and also mention in my answer to the other person that um of the Ten Commandments, nine of them are repeated in the New Testament, and they are for us. Uh, only the fourth commandment is not, and it's because it is a picture. I've, I've used this illustration before. I'll use it again, but very quickly. Um, I've got a picture of Paul at home that I love. She was very, very young. It's a beautiful picture. I always keep it in a prominent place where I I can see it, and and yet if. I were to go home tonight, and instead of hugging Paula, I would go hug that picture, well, I'd be the one getting ripped off. That picture is a picture of Paula. But but wouldn't I be silly to ignore hugging Paula, putting my arms around her and, and feeling her uh, in favor of the picture that could give me no love back? Well, Jesus is the fulfillment of the picture of the Sabbath. And so we're not um, obligated to celebrate the fourth commandment any longer. Uh, all the other commandments, except that one, are repeated in the New Testament. I hope that's easy. You know, we keep getting that question over and over and over. And it's a little frustrating only because it's so easy to understand. And we've got people that are just determined to hold on to the pictures instead of holding on to Paula hope that makes sense. <laughs> 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Here's a question from Leo. He says, well, cremated people go to heaven. I'm counting on it, Leo, because when I uh, leave this body, this body is going to be cremated. So, yeah, cremated people will go to heaven if if they were born again believers. That's the only criteria, you know. I get a lot of flack sometimes about our position on cremation. Um, Let me push back just a little bit. I think there is nothing more gross, more obnoxious than the amount of money, money that most people can't afford, that we spend because we have a superstitious view of death. It makes no sense. As a pastor, I've done an awful lot of funerals. And people go into debt in spite of our counsel not to. Uh, they go into debt. And they do so because they would feel really guilty. And of course, funeral homes are like car dealers; They want to sell. That's how they make their living. What happens to these old bodies when they wear out? Doesn't matter at all. The value we have in these bodies now... Is Christ in us, the Holy Spirit? We're the temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul says. But when the Spirit leaves, and that's what happens upon death, when we die, the spirit of man, the spirit of Ron, when I die, is going to go to be in the presence of the Lord. And he's going to leave this body behind. I hate to talk about myself in the third person, but but I just move from from a bad neighborhood to a good neighborhood. Um, So what happens to the old neighborhood doesn't really matter. Paul and I, we moved. uh, We moved to a new house um, two years ago, two and a half years ago. And, um, you know, occasionally, once in a while, especially at the beginning, we'd drive by the old house and look at it and maybe for a moment feel nostalgic. But only for a moment, then we went right back to the new house. Well, how much more these bodies, when we uh, die and we leave these old, wearing out tents, um, there's no nostalgia. It's not like if I was able to, I would come back to the old body and visit it and say, well, I wish I was with you still. It's not going to happen. So what happens to these old bodies doesn't make any difference at all. If God can um, put together bodies from the sea, if God can put together... Bodies that have been burned to death in tragic accidents, if god can can make mankind out of the dust out of nothing um he certainly won't have any problem um having cremated people uh who are going to heaven uh I think the best explanation leo I've ever had of this is that cremation um in thirty nine minutes does what it takes thirty nine years to do naturally when our bodies are dust to dust, ashes to ashes. So, I hope that answers your question. Jefferson says this. Jefferson is a skeptic. He says, it doesn't seem possible to believe in Adam and Eve as literal beings, nor is it possible to believe in a worldwide flood. Now, he doesn't ask any question. Jefferson, that's one of the problems with people who take your position. They don't ask questions. They simply don't ask questions. I, I, it's perfectly possible to believe in Adam and Eve as literal beings because that's what the Bible says they are. Now, people will say, well, how do we know the Bible is true? Well, Jesus himself said that Adam and Eve were the first two. In the beginning, there was a man, there was a woman. That's Adam and Eve. We know that. So I don't know why anybody has a problem believing in, in Adam and Eve's literal beings other than the lies they've been told without any evidence at all about man being millions or even billions of years old and, and starting from the primordial, primordial ooze to, uh, to uh, uh, being lower life creatures and evolving into upright creatures. I mean, who can believe that? Jefferson, that to me makes no sense at all and there is absolutely no evidence. So Jesus believed that Adam and Eve were literal He believed that they were the first human beings, and he said so. You know what happens if that's not true, Jefferson? If it's not true, it means that Jesus lied. If Jesus lied, it means that we can't be saved. I I actually know people that say they're Christians, but don't believe uh, in, in a literal Adam and Eve. They don't believe that God created things. And I'll say, well, why do you? Well, Jesus died for my sins. Yeah, but if Jesus lied, he himself is a sinner. I've got to tell you, and I've said this about the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis often, if those chapters are not literal and not to be taken literally, then every major doctrine of the New Testament church falls apart. There is no original sin. If Adam and Eve didn't sin, If they weren't literal, then there's no such thing as original sin. There's no need for Jesus to die on the cross. He asked if there was any other way this cup could pass for me. And the answer was no, there isn't. So I don't know why that's hard for people to believe. You've got to make a choice. Who do you believe? Scientists who begin with the premise that there is no God. And they come up with all these alternative theories. Why is it that we take those theories as fact? instead of looking at the facts in the beginning God we know that's fact it's in our word why are we quick to believe science who's discounted God rather than take the position of supporting what God has made very very clear Jefferson with regard to the worldwide flood um, Jesus affirmed that as well the, the New Testament affirms a worldwide flood. I, I don't know why it's hard to believe. Uh, it's only hard to believe because you choose to make it hard to believe. And I think this is a position that we who are believers, we need to take seriously. Who are we going to trust? Are we going to trust God? Are we going to trust science who says there is no God? So, Jefferson, that's the choice that you have to make. I've made my choice. <clears throat> I hope the choice you've made up to now um, is one that changes. I think eternity depends on it. Jason says, I know God could heal me if he wanted to, but he doesn't. How is that a good God? Well, Jason, a good God, didn't heal his son. He didn't stop his son. His son begged him three times uh, to find another way. And he didn't. And then he sent that son to die for your sins, Jason, and mine. Sometimes when I get questions like this, it's a little distressing. I'm sorry, it's a little distressing. Um, because I think a lot of us, even as professing Christians, we believe God owes us a healing, or God owes us, Uh, an easy or comfortable life. That's simply not true. Jason, before you got sick or before you got hurt, there were people who were sick and hurting all the time. You probably didn't question God's goodness then, but now, because it's happened to you, you question God's goodness. So I don't know what God could do, how he could do anything more to prove that he's a good God other than... What he's done, taking the punishment your sins deserve. A father who turned his back on his own son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cried out. What more could he do to prove to you that he's good? I'm going to go one step farther, Jason. I don't know you, so only take this personally if it works for you. But God knows your heart. If God's goodness depends on how he treats you, isn't that pretty selfish? He's never promised to heal us. He's promised to be with us in our pain, in our discomfort. He's promised Jason never to leave us, even when somebody like you questions his goodness. And I don't know, I really truly don't know What more he could do? God became a man to take the punishment your sins deserve. And he died so that you and I could live forever in heaven. What more does he have to do to prove not only that he's God, but that he's good? It seems pretty selfish. Self-centered is probably a better term. It seems pretty self-centered. To say, well, God, if you're really good, then you heal me. And when God knows your heart, that says, well, if you don't heal me, then I'm going to question your goodness. Almost 33 years ago, Jason, I decided God was good because I understood how bankrupt morally and spiritually I was. And I've never been able to shake the gratitude that I have for having saved, and I'm going to Quote the old hymn, a wretch like me, I truly was a wretch. And he saved me when I hated him. He didn't have to, but he did. So I hope that makes sense to you. Thank you. Here's a question for Mitchell. If Jesus died for our sins, why do we have to believe in him first to be saved he could just forgive us if he wanted to. I think, Mitchell, that's a fallacy that that, that people don't even try to understand. Uh, he could not possibly overlook our sin. You know, Jesus died for the sins of the world. I believe that Jesus was real. But, but if we're going to continue to sin, then we really don't believe. Um, intellectual assent is not belief. It's not faith. And if God could just wave his hand and say... Um, okay i'm going i 'm going to forgive your sins well well even if he did that we 'd have to start over the, the next day and we 'd sin again and we 'd be separated from God. His justice demands punishment and Jesus stepped up and took the punishment isaiah fifty three says the punishment for our peace was placed upon him, and because that 's true, our sins are forgiven But if there was no punishment then there can be no forgiveness. Justice demands remedy. Justice demands punishment. And so God can't just overlook our sins. Our sin is what separates us from God. That's why sin has to be dealt with. That's why we have to believe in Jesus Christ before we can be saved. It's that simple. So, Mitchell, uh, pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Now you have a choice to make. Diana says, um, what qualification, and in parentheses parentheses she writes credentials or education, do I need to go out and share the gospel with others? Um, Diana, you don't need any qualifications at all. Paul said God chooses the foolish things of the world of shame. The wise, the weak things, the shame, the strong, the despised things, even the things that are not. And we were given the the, the the mandate to go out and share the gospel and make disciples of all nations. And and clearly, we don't need any credentials. One of the things, Diane, I love in the book of Acts is when people are following after Peter and James and John and the others. Um. The religious leaders were all upset. The whole world is going after these people, and and it, it says this when they looked at the disciples. When they they discovered they were ordinary, uneducated men. They were even more frustrated because why is everybody listening? We're the ones that have been to school. We're the ones who are experts in the law. These are just ordinary people. And Galileans, by the way, they sounded ignorant. You know, we we make fun of people with a deep Southern accent sometimes. Um, Galileans, uh, their accent was so distinct, uh, that they were looked down upon as less than smart. And, and these ordinary uneducated fishermen of all people, they were the ones that were commanding the attention of the crowds. They had no credentials except, and here's the only credential qualification that you need, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They had been filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and the fire of God and the word of God was in their bellies and in their hearts. And that's what they, they, they were de- proclaiming. You know, Diana, when, when you look at the book of Acts, when you think, well, Peter was the one, that, Peter the denier was the one who was chosen. Acts chapter 2, he's, he's so bold, afraid earlier of a woman and what she said. Now he's so bold in front of this, this throng of people. And and the only difference is the baptism of the Spirit. And education, you asked about, the one reason Peter was chosen by God, you'll notice it in the book of Acts, every time he opens his mouth, the Word of God comes out. Diana, if you're in the Word, if you're devouring the Word, and and I use that word purposely, if you're devouring the Word of God, then you have all the information you need. Now, I'm not saying that getting a Bible college education is bad. In fact, we are going to be in the next year uh, opening up a Bible college here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. However, that's not necessary. What's necessary is a hunger, a love for the Word of God, and a passion for lost souls, and the power of the Holy Spirit to sort of empower you through all that God is going to do it. So you just go out and share. If the Spirit leads you to get further education, do it. I can tell you personally that when I went to Bible college, Diana, uh, I didn't have to study nearly as hard or as long as I did when I was on my own. I spent twice as much time in the Bible as I did when I was at Bible college. So there just wasn't really anything at all about Bible college. I mean, God used Bible college to humble me, to teach me some lessons, to 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 um, show me the hearts of the people that He really cared for. Um, but we don't need any qualifications. You go out and start sharing Jesus. We got a young man named AJ in our church, uh, and and this guy came from a background. You know, ITs our church. Hey, I'm the worst sinner in here, and, and I said, well, only because AJ's not at this service. But, but AJ's life was a mess. He was on his way to prison. And he got filled with Holy Spirit. And now it's been about three years, maybe four years. And he's more on fire now than he was before. He's never stopped sharing. So you just do that. That's all that matters. Thank you, Diane, and God bless you for wanting to go out. The idea that we need to go to seminary or to a Bible college uh, is distinctly Western. Uh, Again, it's not bad. I'm not demeaning uh, the value of of an education. But uh, the education we need first and foremost is in the Word of God. Here is a question from Marilyn. Not sure exactly what she means. This might be the last one of the day. What would you say to someone who wants proof of God's existence apart from the Bible? Um, Marilyn, a couple of things. I've had people say, well, can you prove God's existence without using the Bible? Um, Yeah, I can, but I don't really need to. And and I I wouldn't pander to somebody like that. I would tell somebody who says, well, without the Bible, how do you know God exists? Um, I, I would tell them, you know, I think your question is dishonest. We all are instinctively born with the knowledge of God. Instinctively. We know God exists. We know there's something or someone out there. God put that in us. Now, more specifically, Marilyn, I like to tell people, well, why do you think the sun comes up every day, every day in the eastern sky? Why is it cold every January, and why is it hot every July and August? Because we go through seasons. Do you think that the the consistency of that is a coincidence? Creation declares the glory of God. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Every day, we have the overwhelming evidence of a designer. We know his name is Jesus Christ. I think even a bigger proof is conscience. And this comes, both of them, creation and conscience comes from Romans chapter 1. Why do we feel bad about doing something if we don't believe in God? Why do we feel bad about doing something? Why don't we just beat people up if we can? Why don't we kill people? Why don't we take what we want? It's because our conscience is a governor given to us by God. That conscience screams the reality of God, and demands an answer for the things that we do. So, Marilyn, that's all you need to do. Romans 1, creation and conscience, that's proof. But, remember this. The question's dishonest. All you can do is declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for putting up with my voice. I know this is a pain in the rear end, but... Lord willing, Paula will be here tomorrow with us at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then.
1: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com.